Let's open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 11. You notice in your worship folders an announcement about feast groups. Some of you who were here long enough remember feasts from years ago. And, and, and some, you know, this is, this is the danger, quote unquote, of what happens when you preach about something. Somebody's going to act upon it, okay? And somebody said, look, this is what Randy's been preaching. And sure enough, they went and did something about it. Now, Joe's going to talk about it next week. Okay, Joe's going to talk more about this next week. But you can get the, the short gist of it here in your worship folder. And then you can sign up for it or call the office or talk to Joe or Tamara if you ha- want more information. <laughs> All right, Luke chapter 11. Let's stand and we'll I'll read the word of God. Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we pray that our eyes would be open about what it is that you call us to do, that you call us so often to go beyond what we're comfortable with and do the things that serve your kingdom. And and sometimes we're simply shocked at, at the way that it turns out, that you would deem to use us, these clay earthen vessels full of this treasure of Christ, to be your instruments that others may live. We pray pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Luke chapter 11, start in verse 37. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. Now there's the gist of what we're studying, okay, right there. But the rest of it is the, what's, what's Paul Harvey say? Oh, the rest of the story. That's what he says. This is the rest of the story. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the front seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. And one of the lawyers, that would be the scribes, said to him and replied, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us. Yeah, that was kind of bland there. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. Consequently, you are witnesses, and above the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them, and they will kill, and some they will persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. (coughs) Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. 
And when they left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. Now you can tell it's another meal story, and and that's what we've been studying here. And this time it is a Pharisee who asks Jesus to come and have lunch with him. And immediately we can pretty much tell that this is not one of the Pharisees, we don't get the impression, who, who really wants to hear about Jesus and wants to digest what he says, but he is looking more to trap him into something. Now the Pharisees, let's get a brief history of the Pharisees just so we understand that they didn't start out bad. Okay, they actually started out very good. They started out with a good purpose, and that was the holiness of the people. They felt, a group of people felt that the people of God, the Jewish nation, had wandered away from the truths and wandered away from holiness. And this group, about 200 years before the birth of Christ, said the way that we can get the people back to holiness is an emphasis upon the law. So they began to teach and to present and to challenge people to live according to the law, according to the Old Testament. Now, it was their intention to what they were going to identify it, they were going to communicate it, they were going to facilitate obedience to God's law, thereby producing holiness within the people. Great plan, a great plan. Now, people in Jesus' day would have revered the Pharisees because they were the most uh, spiritual people of the nation, because they adhered to the law. They adhered to what uh, they were people of the book, the Old Testament. They lived by the book. Okay? But the problem with the Pharisees was not in what they believed, not even in what they hoped to do, but in, actually, in actuality what they became was the problem. Their goals were noble. Their presuppositions that this is the word of God, the Old Testament, that's correct. But what happened is they got sidetracked. They, a group of well-intentioned men desiring holiness in the nation of Israel came to dwell too much on the letter of the law and not enough on the spirit of the law. And not only just the law, but also the oral traditions that were passed down. In fact, they began to raise those above the written word of God. So the written word of God might say, don't work on the Sabbath. Well, they felt they had to define what work was. So they went to the nth degree in trying to define what work is. Even today, raised in in, in Pittsburgh, if you go to Squirrel Hill, which is a largely uh, ethnically Jewish area, you'll find people wearing loafers on the Sabbath. Why would they wear loafers on the Sabbath? So they don't have to tie their shoes, because tying their shoes is what? It's work. How did they get that idea? From the oral tradition and the laws that were passed down. Did God ever say you can't tie your shoes on the Sabbath? Uh, no. Okay. So in, in places, even in Matthew chapter 15 as an example, they raised the traditions above the Old Testament written law. So Jesus had just finished speaking and a Pharisee asked, he says, come to my house so we can... We can have lunch together. Great invitation, okay? Great chance to learn things. Invite somebody to your house. Break down the cultural barriers. Break down the social barriers. Um, but as I said, he didn't invite him to, to learn about him, but in an effort to catch Jesus doing something that would break the man-made laws of 
tradition. Jesus doesn't wash his hands. Now, this isn't a hygiene issue. This is a ceremonial issue, an issue of tradition. Um, where, you know, if, if you were really godly, before you did something like, like eat, you would take your hands and you would wash them. You'd hold them up like this and the water would drip that way. And then you would wash them again and hold them down like this and the water would drip off this way. And then you would dry your hands together like that. If you did it any other way, you had to start again because your hands became unclean. You know, it was just jumping through hoops and hoops and hoops. And the Pharisees were big about these, but they didn't care about what was inside. They didn't care about keeping the inside of the cup clean. Now, the ritual washing was important, but it was an addition to what God's word says. And when we add to God's word, what's, what's that? That's trouble, okay? Well, I know God said this, but, oh, that's trouble, okay? He says you can't add to it, you can't take away from it. This is what God wants us to do. This is how he wants us to live. They thought they were improving on God's word. Okay, does anybody think that they can improve on God's word? Right answer. Okay, right answer. No, we can't improve upon it. It, it is. We need to live it out. Now, Jesus said he could identify with the prostitutes and the tax gatherers and the sinners before he could, and, or more easily identify with them before he could with those who thought they were righteous. Those who thought they were righteous. He says, I've come to call sinners to righteousness. The doctor comes to see the sick people. He doesn't come to see those who think that they are well. Now those who are obviously living in sin are ripe for the gospel. Those who think they have it all together and think they know best, like the Pharisees, they seem to be a tougher nut to crack. Okay, Let's turn over to John chapter 8 for a second and let's look at a couple things um, as an example of what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is, saves his harshest words for those who think that they're righteous. And when he comes to those who, are, who know their sin who know that they're involved in sin, his words are true, his words are uncompromising, but they are compassionate. They are compassionate and they are gentle. John chapter 8, verse 3. And the, when the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and this is, the, we all know this parable, the woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, uh, let's think about that for a moment. How do you catch somebody in the very act of adultery? Well, you have to know what is going on. You have to have several witnesses that have to go and catch that person or those two people in that act of adultery. Okay, now adultery is very bad. Let's not minimize this. Especially Leviticus chapter 20 says, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be stoned. Both parties are to be stoned. Now, why in the world would God take such a hard line about adultery? Well, because you go back and you look at our Heavenly Father's relationship with his covenant people. He is the husband, they are the wife. That is repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament. You come to the New Testament, you see Jesus Christ as the groom, the church as the bride. Okay, This is the image that is laid before us. That's why the... Punishment for adultery was so strict and so drastic. Okay, 
So here we have, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act, in the very act of adultery. Now, when the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman, you notice they don't mention the guy. So that leads us to believe that maybe the guy was in on this and helped entrap the woman so that they could take the woman to Jesus and try to entrap Jesus in one of their plans. Now, in the law of Moses, verse 5, commands us to stone such a woman, what then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now, I want to tell you, there have been, there's been a number, of hundreds and thousands of words written about, what did Jesus write on the ground? I don't know. Okay. It doesn't say it, so it must not be important. Okay. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone with the woman where she had been in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. Now understand... As I said, this is probably a plant. It's probably a trap. We don't have a man here, the other part of the adulterous couple. Um, So he was probably in on the setup. It was a plan from the Pharisees. Um, And and what they're attempting to do here is trap Jesus with a clear command from Moses. Moses says if, if they're caught in adultery, they have to be killed. Now, Jesus, back in chapter 5 of John, had already called this group of Pharisees adulterers. Okay? So in reality, they're probably guilty of the same sin, at least spiritually, if not physically, than what they're accusing this woman of. Now, if he wants to say, Jesus, if you really believe the law of Moses is true, then you'll tell us the stoner and executor. Okay, But if Jesus says to stoner and executor, then how is he a friend of sinners? If all he's interested in is towing the line and following through on the law. But if he says, no, you can't stoner, then they're going to say, well, you don't follow the law of Moses, so you're not a true prophet. Because we know God's word was given directly to Moses. So what is Jesus to do? Now, this is far more than a localized issue here in John chapter 8. This is one of the great moral and theological issues that we have been wrestling with for thousands of years. How does God harmonize his justice and his mercy? Justice demands certain things, but yet God provides mercy at the same time. Now, the answer for us is here in this passage. Jesus challenges the Pharisees. He said, go ahead and stone her if you don't have any sin yourself. They all drop their stones and and they wander off. But he doesn't leave it there. The woman is guilty. He says, go and sin no more. So here you have this woman who who knows her sin, and she is trapped in this sin and and, and guilty of it, and he says, now go and don't do it again, but go, go and live like you have been forgiven, 
live and walk in the holiness that you have now understood as you have been forgiven this great sin. Jesus speaks hard words to those who think they are righteous and true words filled with compassion who know that they are sinful. Who know that they are sinful. I'm going to take a couple moments and I'm going to tell you a story. It's a true story about a woman's life. And some of you may have already been aware of it. It's from the book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Has anybody read this? Just a couple, okay? It's written by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. And I'm just condensing the first chapter. So I'm going to read and it will be first person. So it will sound like it is her. So I want you to understand what she is writing, and you'll understand the significance of this in just a moment. She says, My life as I knew it became a train wreck in April of 1999 at the age of 36. At that time, I was an associate professor at Syracuse University, tenured in the English department and also teaching in the Center for Women's Studies. I was in a lesbian relationship. I had two homes We were members of the Unitarian Universalist Church where I was the coordinator of what is called the Welcoming Committee, the Gay and Lesbian Activist Group. My primary field of teaching was 19th century literature grounded in Darwinism, Freud, and Marx. But my specialty was queer studies, a postmodern form of gay and lesbian studies. She said, I had published articles, a recent book, I had traveled as a lecturer, spoke at many conferences, I did a lot of high-profile things as a professor, even giving the keynote address at the Gay Pride event at Harvard. I saw my life as meaningful, busy, full, and moral. Christians always seemed like bad thinkers to me. It seemed they could only maintain their worldview by sheltering themselves from the world's problems. They appeared to use the Bible in what Marx called a vulgar way using the Bible to stop a conversation, not to deepen the conversation. In addition to being anti-intellectual, Christians scared me. Christians, Christians can lay hold of the meaning and purpose and grace of suffering and truly believe that all things, even evil things, work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. Now, the lesbian community felt safe accepting and welcoming, while the Christian community appeared exclusive, judgmental, and afraid of diversity. In spite of having a worldview that valued flexibility, unanswerable big life questions started to nag at me while I was doing research for my second book, A Study in the Rise of the Religious Right in America. I could see that feminism had truly captured the soul of secular U.S. universities and the church was either too weak or too ignorant to know how to respond. I saw Christians full of spiritual pride and their gatherings as nothing more than a club. But I also knew that there was more to it than that. What is the core of Christianity? Why do true believers believe? What do they believe? Why is their faith person-centered and not idea-centered? She writes, because I was a a scholar, I knew I couldn't study the Bible on my own, so I started a self-study of Greek and searched for someone to help me understand the Bible, and that help came in a most unusual way. 
After I had published a critique of the promise keepers for their gender politics, I received a batch of hate mail and a batch of fan mail. I kept two large boxes in my office for comparison. The, the, the boxes that reams of paper come in. This is what she writes. You know, so there, it, both boxes were full. But people hated what she said and people loved what she said. In the batch of mail I received, I also received a letter from Pastor Ken Smith, at the time the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. It encouraged me to explore the kind of questions that I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you are right? Do you believe in God? He didn't argue with my article, but asked me to explore and defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. No one had asked me those questions before. I mean, these are reasonable questions that postmodern scholars toss around at faculty meetings all the time. Ken's letter invited me to think in ways that I had never thought before. Now, she writes that she's kind of a neat freak, and there's nothing ever is left on her desk. But she says, for six days, that letter sat on my desk. The letter invited me to call its author and discuss these ideas more fully. After a week, I called. We had a nice chat on the phone, and Pastor Ken, are you ready? Invited me to have dinner at his house. Okay, how many of you have ever talked to somebody on the phone once and said, why don't you come over and have dinner with me? Uh, That doesn't usually happen, but that's what he did. Okay, that's what he did. Pastor Ken invited me to dinner at his house to explore some of these questions. I took him up on his offer. I was excited to meet a real born-again Christian and find out why he believes such silly ideas. I assume that this dinner was another aspect of my research. Pastor Ken lived about two miles from my house. It was on my running route, so I knew exactly where it was. I remember in great detail the first meeting with Ken and his wife Flo. I remember being conscious of my butch haircut and the gay and pro-life or pro-choice bumper stickers on my car. I remember how relieved I was when I learned that Flo had made a vegetarian stir-fry because I tried to maintain a vegetarian diet for health and moral reasons. I was pleased they didn't use air conditioning as I was a concerned environmentalist. I wanted to get to know these people, but not at the expense of compromising my moral standards. I liked Ken and Flo immediately because they seemed sensitive to my values and that I had values and opinions that were different from theirs. They talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. Ken prayed before we ate, but it was like no prayer I had ever heard before, private, honest, sincere, transparent. Ken made himself vulnerable to God. I believe that God was dead and the realities of poverty and war and violence and racism and sexism were proof that he didn't care about his creation. I believed, as Marx wrote, that religion was the opiate of the masses. But Ken's God seemed alive, three-dimensional, wise, if firm. And Ken and Flo were anything but intellectually impaired. These people simply didn't fit the stereotype that I had for Christians, and I didn't know what to do with this. Ken and Flo invited a stranger into the house, not to scapegoat me, but to listen, to learn, and to dialogue. Ken and Flo 
have a transparent and vulnerable faith. We didn't debate worldviews. We talked about personal truth and what made us tick. Ken and Flo didn't identify with me. They listened to me and identified with Christ. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. During our meal, they did not share the gospel with me, nor did they invite me to church. At the end of the evening, they said they wanted to stay in touch, and I believed them. Now, before I ever stepped into church, she says, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Flo. They were willing to bring the church to me. I often think about how Ken handled my questions. He could have cut our conversation short and simply quoted Acts chapter 16, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. But Ken told me that he felt that I needed to search my heart and take stock of myself before God. The next Sunday, I started to attend the Reformed Presbyterian Church. Now, if you read the book, you'll get this, but I'm going to tell you what she says in the book because it's important. She says, I got out of the bed that I shared with my lesbian partner and went to church. She says, I say that so you understand you never know what the person who's sitting next to you has been through or just left to come to church. She says, even though I felt like a freak in that church, I was drawn to keep going back. She elaborates a little bit more and then gets to the night that she prayed. The night I prayed, I asked God if the gospel message was for someone like me. And I viscerally, viscerally felt the presence of God as I prayed. Jesus seemed alive and present and I knew I was not alone in that room. I prayed that if Jesus was truly a real and risen God that he would change my heart. And if he was real and if I was his, I pray that he would give me the strength of mind to follow him and the character to become a godly woman. I prayed for the strength of character to repent for a sin that at that time I didn't feel like was sin at all. I felt like it was life, plain and simple. I prayed that if my life was actually his life, that he would take it back and make it what he wanted it to be. I asked him to take it all. My sexuality, my profession, my community, my taste, my books, my tomorrows. Today, Rosaria lives in North Carolina with her husband, Kent, three of her four children. Kent is a pastor at a Reformed Presbyterian church. What if Ken and Flo had said, you know what, do we really want to bring a stranger into our house? Really? Really? But they went above and beyond and said, you know what? We invite this person in. It is a chance to hear and a chance to be the gospel to that person. It probably wasn't easy for them. That was my thought when I first read this. But, but we find out later that that was their life. They did things like that on a regular basis. They took the church to people who otherwise would not walk through the door. And then they invested in this woman, Rosaria, for two years, from the first meeting for two years until she walked into a church. They were the church to her. 
an invitation to dinner, a willingness to listen, a willingness to invest in someone who was very, very different, the patience to see the Lord at work in his time and speak the words of truth, but to speak them gently and in compassion and also to live out the words of truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes we forget the power of the gospel. Sometimes we may look at people and go, oh, there's, there's no way that I could reach them. There's no way that, that I have anything in common with them. But simple things, an invitation, a willingness to listen and to talk about what is true, patience, so that we wait to see you work and we're simply the instruments. Not giving it one shot and then saying, well, it didn't work. But, but, but Ken and Flo, for two years, they invested in this woman's life. The fruit has been fantastic. Lord, what will you call us to do? Who will you call us to invite? Lord, you invite us to this table. We who are sinners, we who maybe in our hearts today seem far off from you, you invite us to this table to be intimate with you, to know you, to receive your grace. Prepare our hearts, Lord. Remind us of how much we have been forgiven, how much we are loved by you, and how you call us to demonstrate that to those who are far off, that they too might know your love, know your forgiveness, and know your care. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.